Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Ira Flato is away. This week, a round of Supreme Court decisions came and went without the one that many people have been expecting, an opinion overturning the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 that could allow states to impose abortion bans. But even as people prepare for a changed landscape with respect to reproductive rights, a new poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that many Americans don't fully understand some of the areas that might be affected. Joining me now to talk about that and other stories from the week in science is Rachel Feltman, executive editor at Popular Science. She's also author of a recent book on human sexual history, Been There, Done That. Welcome back to Science Friday, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about this poll from Kaiser Family Foundation. It covers a lot of topics around abortion and access and attitudes toward it. But one of the things that struck me was about medication abortion. It's something that we've covered recently on the show. What did it find? Unsurprisingly, but still very disappointingly, the poll found that a lot of adults in the U.S. have not heard of mifepristone, which is the drug that's used to induce medication abortion. Only around a quarter of U.S. adults who were polled had heard of it. And that is especially upsetting when you realize that at this point, Something like more than half of the abortions that occur in the U.S. are medication abortions. And it wasn't just that people hadn't heard of this drug, but there were also uh, a lot of misconceptions about how to access it and what it actually does. It is really, really amazing. Almost everybody we talked to when we did a story a few weeks ago about this said, I didn't know that that accounted for more than half the abortions uh, in America. Why do you think that there is this big knowledge gap, Rachel? There are a lot of folks who just don't come across information about abortion unless they are trying to access one. And of course, you don't want any aspect of your health care to be something that you're only learning about when you are stressed and trying to figure out how to access care. And yeah, with medication abortion specifically, we saw in this poll a lot of people thinking that you can get it without a prescription, which uh, unfortunately is not true. So again, that's something you really want people to know before they are trying to access an abortion. There are also lots of people who very clearly confuse it with emergency contraception. That's dangerous for a couple reasons. I mean, for one thing, There does seem to be this knowledge gap where because people confuse medication abortion with emergency contraception like Plan B, uh, they think it's actually easier to access than it is. Now, in lots of states, you can access medication abortion through telemedicine, so you don't need an in-person appointment. So it's not 
difficult to access, but it does take some planning. You can't just walk into a pharmacy and get it. And then on the other hand, we see in this poll a lot of folks who think that Plan B and medication abortion are the same thing. And that's really dangerous when we see laws that are trying to uh, make abortion more difficult to access. There are people who think that Plan B, which you can get at the drugstore, is capable of ending an early stage pregnancy. And it is not. It is a contraceptive method, not a way to induce abortion. And we see increasingly the same lawmakers who are trying to limit access to abortion trying to make the line between abortion and contraception blurrier. And we see methods like IUDs and emergency contraception being lumped in with termination. Now, this is a great example of how ignorance around reproductive health care can mean that limiting abortion can also mean limiting contraception. We're going to be following, of course, more reproductive rights stories in the weeks ahead. We want to turn to another health story, though. News this week about a small but potentially very important study of an experimental drug for rectal cancer. Tell us about this, Rachel. Yeah. So in this new study, which was an immunotherapy trial, people with a very unresponsive colorectal cancer cases had really stunning results. I believe it was 12 people in the trial. And of course, that is a very small group. So all of these findings come with the caveat that this is very preliminary in terms of um, how widely applicable the treatment could be. But the success rates they saw were still just stunning in that the drug made tumors disappear in all 12 people. And two years later, uh, none of those tumors had reemerged and none of those patients had needed chemo radiation or surgery. And especially since colorectal cancer is on the rise in groups of young people who uh, traditionally were thought to not really have to worry about high cancer risk, um, this is really exciting. It is exciting, but, but a lot of caution here. This is a really, really small study. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think the reason it's still so exciting is that a lot of people still talk about, quote unquote, curing cancer as if cancer is one thing. And it's important to remember that really it is an umbrella uh, and we are going to need so many types of treatments and targeted treatments to really make cancer less of a death sentence and um, a, less of an impact on quality of life for all of the people who get all types of cancer. In other news this week, there's a milestone in climate change, but of course, not a very good one. CO2 <laughs> levels are seemingly higher than ever? Um, again, not surprising, but still disappointing. The latest data from NOAA shows that our CO2 levels are at 421 parts per million, which is up uh, a little less than two parts per million from last year and puts us at the highest CO2 levels since we uh, started being able to record them <laughs> in history. They've skyrocketed by like 50% since the late 19th century. And we now match the balmy conditions of more than 4 million years ago. It was a great time to be a giant sloth. Not so great to be a human. Very high sea levels. Southern Florida was completely underwater. And that was a period of CO2 level and warming that had uh, built up very slowly. And we have managed to just zoom right into it, which is not great. It's it's not great indeed. Moving on, 
when we talk about climate change, one of the usual poster animals is the polar bear. But there's some new research this week about the evolutionary history and relationships between bear species. This is interesting. Yeah. So what's cool about polar bears and kind of a bummer about polar bears is that since they spend so much of their time on ice flows, we actually don't have a lot of their bones to study when you uh, try to get back in like the fossil record because they tend to end up on the bottom of the ocean. In 2004, these geologists in uh, Svalbard found a 115,000-year-old jawbone that has been the source of a lot of uh, insight into ancient polar bears and their their evolution. Um, And so now we have this new, really high-res DNA analysis, and it's looking specifically at brown bears versus polar bears because there's been like a lot of debate among evolutionary biologists about how closely related they are. In fact, at times, it has been argued that they're essentially the same species. So this study finally settles that debate and says, no, they are definitely very distinct. They did interbreed a lot. And actually, it was brown bears that contributed a bunch of genes to polar bears, not the other way around. Hmm. Well, something that affects us all, I'm sure. You never seem to have the right charger for your widget, for your phone or your iPad (laughs) or whatever. It's just like, for me, it's just a tangle of white cables in a drawer. But there's a new ruling in the European Union that might actually help us with that. What is it? Yeah. So the EU has decreed that all of its member countries, if they're selling electronic devices like headphones, earbuds, e-readers, and of course, phones, they need to use a USB-C charging port. And that has to happen by the fall of 2024. Wow. So that that could happen by the fall of 2024. Does that mean that Apple and all the other phone makers are going to change the types of phones that they're making? Like they're not going to have these weird proprietary ports anymore? Well, so that's definitely the idea. And because the EU is such a huge chunk of the market, it's hard to imagine that Apple would sell like multiple types of phones just to have some that use USB-C and some that continue to use the lightning port. Now, of course, lots of Apple products have already switched to USB-C, but a lot of tech writers uh, have been making the case that it's more likely that Apple is just going to switch totally to wireless charging for its phones to get around this mandate. (laughs) But it'll be interesting to see sort of how this actually affects the charger chaos. <laughs> uh, we've got time for one last quick story. And, and, you know, we're all awaiting the first science images from the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWST. Those are supposed to come in mid-July, but there's some news this week about the mirrors on, on this device. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, the JWST team actually detected a micrometeoroid hitting one of the telescope's 18 mirror segments, which is just a a piece of space debris, usually from a comet that's, you know, a tiny fraction of a meter long. And because things can pick up a huge amount of speed in the vacuum of space, even those tiny little bits of debris can really cause damage. I mean, we talk about this with the ISS all the time. They'll get little like chips in their windows and everyone freaks out, but luckily it is built to withstand it. Um, And of course, this space telescope is definitely prepared for these kinds of micrometeoroid collisions. So they have reported that this first impact was certainly a doozy, but just showed how uh, well prepared the telescope is to withstand space debris. Hmm. Since we're in space, I guess I should ask you, the Mars rover this week, it's reported, has found 
a little friend. <laughs> yes, I love this so much. So um, Perseverance, the uh, the newest rover on Mars, um, has a pet rock and has has had for <laughs> about four months. Um, there's this little rock that's on the rover's uh, front left wheel, and it has been there for 100 souls since early February. And it's gone more than 5.3 miles. It's just bouncing around. Apparently, it's pretty common for rovers to pick up rocks in their wheels, but this one is like gunning to set a record and it's going to be very far from where it started whenever Perseverance finally lets it go. Has the pet rock been named yet? Uh, not to my knowledge, but that's a great question and and NASA should definitely uh, get on that. They did note that uh, wherever it falls, it is going to cause a lot of confusion for future Mars geologists, which is a fun long-term prospect to think about. But for now, um, I'm just glad that Perseverance has some company. I know ex exactly. Well, thank you for bringing us this fun story and some not so fun stories, Rachel. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thank you. Rachel Feltman is executive editor at Popular Science. When we come back, we'll discuss the tricky debate over how much to consider race in medical care. Stay with us. Hey, Ira here with an update that Cephalopod Week is just around the corner and it's going to be incredible. All squidding aside, I'd like to invite you to join the Cephaloparty by sponsoring some virtual cephalopods. Here's what I mean. Our talented team of digital producers has built a sea of support on our website, giving each of you the chance to sponsor a cephalopod for just $8. With each donation, you'll get to pick from one of eight beautifully illustrated sea creatures, which we'll post on our site, along with your first name and city. We're aiming to raise $8,000 here, folks, which will go to support all the great work we do at SciFry. So we do hope you'll consider making a gift. Sorry for all the puns. We're cracking up over here. Just head to sciencefriday.com slash sea of support to join us and help us reach our $8,000 goal. Again, that's sciencefriday.com slash sea of support. I'm Ira Flato, squitting you farewell, and thanks. Violent police raids on student protest encampments play out against the backdrop of a crucial presidential election. Could this be 1968 all over again? If every election is just like 1968, then no election is like 1968. Maybe this election is like 2024. Plus, what Israelis are seeing on TV on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Doctors, scientists, and lawmakers are debating how to approach the use of race in medical care. Some of the ways it's used in medicine is based on a big assumption that bodies of different races work differently on some sort of fundamental level. Ray Ellen Bichelle and Kara Anthony are reporters with Kaiser Health News who've been covering this. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Your story says that a patient's race shows up all over the place, like in the opening line of a doctor's notes or describing who a patient is, but also in places that are less obvious, like algorithms that are used to estimate how well your lungs or kidneys are working. So how did we get here with race being such a big part of medicine? Some of it is just outdated science, but also healthcare. it reflects our culture. And race is a big part of our culture and has been for a long time. Dr. Amaka Inaya is a kidney doctor with Fresenius Medical Care, 
and she really traced the history of how race settled into medicine as this biological concept. She and her colleagues say that um, race can be a helpful concept when used in the right way. So like how it can help identify whether um, certain groups of people are experiencing racism and subsequently getting different treatment. But that said, race does not tell you how somebody's body works uh, on a fundamental level. Here's Dr. Ananya. History is being written right now that this is not the right thing to do and that the path forward is to use race responsibly and not to do it in the way that we've been doing it in the past. Hmm. Researchers have found that race gets confused with biology in all sorts of specialties, from bones to hearts to lungs. And for more than a year, we've been looking into kidney disease. So why are you focusing on kidney disease? Well, there are a ton of equations in this specialty that involve race. There's They're called race adjustments or corrections sometimes. And people in this field have been talking a lot about them lately. Just to give you one example, um, one equation that really stuck out to us, it tries to estimate how long transplanted kidneys would last. So it basically asks the question, how good are these kidneys going to be? And the equation downgrades kidneys coming from a black person, um, as if being black was a condition. And on top of that, as if it was a condition more dangerous than diabetes. So one person who says this kind of thinking makes absolutely no sense is Dr. Vanessa Grubbs. And she's a kidney doctor with the University of California, San Francisco. If you had two harvested kidneys, one from a black person, one from a white person just laying on a table, you would see no difference. And there is no gene that you can test for race. There just simply is not. Grubbs is one of many doctors who's been really vocal about this issue. And there's a really important reason for that. There are stark racial disparities, like how black Americans are more than twice as likely than white Americans to have their kidneys fail badly enough that they need a transplant. But black people are also less likely to get a transplant, especially from a living donor, which is really considered best for survival. So there's a nuanced distinction here, but the message that experts in the field really want to get out is that racial disparities in health do not reflect differences in biology. So what they can reflect is a group of people's exposure to racism or a group of people's generational lack of access to stable housing, nutritious food, which can have this domino effect on health. What they're saying is that you wouldn't look at gender pay gaps and assume one gender is fundamentally more capable of hard work. Rather, those show you more who tends to get the opportunities. So so let's talk about why this misperception that race equals biology is is a problem. Can that misperception actually harm patients? Well, for some people, it, it can delay them getting the right treatment or getting the right diagnosis. That matters because kidney disease can really affect your life. Um, until they can get a transplant, a lot of people have to spend hours each week doing dialysis. And typically that means going to a dialysis center um, to get your blood cleaned. It can take hours each time and you do it multiple times a week. Um, all of that can make it really hard to work a regular schedule. It can affect energy levels. It can limit your ability to travel. COVID made it pretty scary too. Um, so this is a condition that can really define what a person can do. Now, in our story, we focused on one case to just figure out where race came up. Yeah, the patient we followed, his name is Alfonso Herod. He's from St. Louis and found out that he had kidney disease about five years ago and needed a transplant. Amazingly, his former boss, her name is Pat Holterman Homes, she wanted to donate one of her kidneys. We followed along to figure out where race came up in their case. Alfonso is black and Pat is white. I called Alfonso the day that he found out that Pat was a match. 
Hey, Carol, how you doing? I heard it's a good day for you. It's a phenomenal day. When Alfonso heard the news, he purchased a thank you gift for Pat. Fresh flowers for the person who would give him a fresh start in life. Except he left them laying around. His wife, Natasha, says she found them first. I walked in and I saw the flowers on the counter. And I said, oh, this is nice. I said, who are these for? You know, trying to be coy. And he said, those are for Pat. I said, oh, they're not for me. He said, no, you didn't give me a kidney. (laughs) Pat did finally get those flowers when she saw Alfonso and his wife in person. Pulling up, you're like, they're here. (laughs) I know, I was so excited. I haven't seen Al except on Zoom um, for a couple of years. So it was great to see him. Grace was on their minds when they sat down to talk about the surgery. I wondered if our racial difference, the fact that Al's black and I'm white, would be a would be a barrier. Natasha wondered, too. I did. I looked it up to see with her not being a family member and then being of a different race, if that would have an impact. Race comes up a lot in life, way beyond health care, on job applications, in school, when you apply for a loan. Alfonso says when he sees that race box that he's supposed to check, he's not always sure why it's there. And it irks him. If I'm trying to get treatment for kidney failure, why does it matter whether I'm black or white, you know, or Hispanic, you know? He wouldn't mind sharing that information if he understood why doctors were asking about his race. But that's never explained, you know, so I leave it blank sometimes when I feel rebellious. Alfonso wants his doctors to see more than his race. I serve as a big brother. I serve as a little brother. Uh, I serve as a listener and sometimes as a talker. And now when he's talking with his doctors, he isn't afraid to ask about race. Just keep your eyes open, ask questions, and inquire, you know, just inquire about things. And John, I actually tried that myself. I'm a Black woman, and I brought up race and kidney disease testing with my own doctor. Because in our reporting, we heard that it can be really useful for patients to do just that, to ask how race is being used in their care. My doctor was a little surprised, but we ended up having a really good conversation, and that appointment changed the way we talked to each other. Hmm. It's interesting. I'm glad that you were able to have that conversation. Um, Let's get back to Alfonso and Pat. So where did race show up in their case as they were on the way to this kidney transplant? Well, one place that really stood out to us was this info packet um, that the hospital gave to Pat when she was just starting out trying to qualify as a donor. Um, And this packet said people with high blood pressure who are black can't donate. But it also said people with high blood pressure who are white could potentially donate with extra testing. What we've learned is that that kind of race-based distinction um, is just not scientifically sound. It's kind of like if you said, okay, people of a certain religion with high blood pressure can't donate, but people with this other religion could. And all of this is important because getting a transplant from a living donor, as Kara said, gives someone the best chance of surviving. And using race without a biological basis as a reason to exclude donors could decrease the pool of people that are available to donate a living organ. If you take this one step further, that's a problem because as long as race is used as a stand-in for someone's ancestry or genetics, then the line between protecting and excluding certain groups will be fuzzy. So what do experts say about how race should actually be used in medicine? Yeah, we talked to Dr. Lisa McElroy, who is a surgeon at uh, Duke University who performs kidney transplants there. This is how she thinks about race in her practice. When I see a Black patient in clinic, 
I don't ignore the fact that they're black. I might spend a little bit extra time in the room emphasizing the importance of living donation. Just like how she might spend more time with a Spanish-speaking patient, making sure they know how to access a translator. And she says the goal here is not to ignore the social determinants of health, like race. It's to help patients overcome the obstacles that can keep them from getting good care. Hmm. But before I let you go, I have to ask, how are Pat and Al doing? They're both doing great. I check in with them all the time, and the road to recovery has been really smooth for both of them. That, that's really good to hear. I, I want to thank you both for bringing us this story. Kara Anthony and Ray Ellen Bichelle are reporters with Kaiser Health News. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And if you want to read their full story on this topic, you can head to our website. It's sciencefriday.com slash race in medicine. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA St. Louis Public Radio, Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Over the past two decades, the federal government has funneled over $2 billion into salmon hatcheries in the Pacific Northwest. And although hatcheries in this region have been around for over two centuries, they've never really been able to replenish the wild salmon population as they were originally designed to do. Despite more salmon being released into the Pacific Ocean than ever, fewer salmon are surviving. And this has had a profound impact on native tribes who live along the Columbia River. They were promised access to fishing on their ancestral lands and now rely upon the troubled hatchery system. This is the focus of an investigation by ProPublica's local reporting network in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Joining me now to talk about their reporting it's Tony Schick, investigative and data reporter with Oregon Public Broadcasting's Science and Environmental Unit, and Irina Huang, data reporter for ProPublica based in Atlanta. Tony and Irina, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. So, Tony, I'll start with you and just ask how exactly we got here. When and why were salmon hatcheries developed in the Pacific Northwest to, to start with? The hatchery idea started back in the late 1800s when salmon were first getting depleted. Spencer Baird, who was a fisheries scientist and the kind of the founder of NOAA Fisheries as it is today, had this idea that, well, we could hatch fish in huge numbers and release them into the rivers. And that would kind of bypass our need to limit our fishing or regulate it in any way. The early hatcheries didn't really have any evidence that they were successful in that. And then the, the idea of hatcheries kind of faded away in the Depression era. And then after World War II, when it was time to industrialize the Columbia River and the Snake River system, then proponents of that needed some way to offset the damage to salmon runs. And hatcheries were the only idea that they had or the only solution they had, then that is when the proliferation of hatcheries really started. That system is largely in place today. Irina, you combed through hundreds of public records from these salmon hatcheries. Explain to us how big this problem is. How many salmon released into the ocean actually survive? So to get to that answer, first, I just want to establish that there's tons of information out there. Hatcheries and federal agencies are employing highly trained fish biologists who put out these reports and management plans that are like tens or even hundreds of pages long. Using that data, we did an analysis. We reported trends in survival over the past decade or so. 
And because salmon runs can vary significantly from year to year, the, you know, the number of adult salmon that are migrating back, we wanted to see how good hatchery salmon survival has been, but also how bad it's been. And we found that in the best case, only two out of eight vulnerable populations in the Columbia River Basin exceeded a 4% survival rate. And that's a rate that a federal agency in the 2000s established as necessary for a population to recover. And in contrast, though, the most recent years of complete data for fish released between 2014 to 2018 showed that none of the eight populations exceeded the 8% survival. One was really dismal. It was as low as 0.5%. And I also just want to add that this is consistent with federal estimates. As of 2020, all hatcheries in the Columbia River Basin area were producing nearly 150 million juvenile fish, but they were seeing only about 1.5 million return to freshwater. And, you know, that 1.5 million, that's about a 1% return rate. That's been estimated to be less than 10% of historical runs. Estimates are that in the mid-1800s, there were anywhere between 5 to 16 million adult salmon coming back, and we are clearly nowhere near that. That is a big, a big change. So what do we know about why so few salmon are returning? I mean, what is it about salmon who started their life in hatcheries that, that makes them less likely to survive? <laughs> you know, like any conversation with a bunch of scientists, I think it boils down to, it depends. But there was a fair bit of consensus in this case. The problem, though, is that the ocean is where most attrition happens. And it turns out that we really can't know a whole lot about what exactly happens to fish in the ocean. And it's not only that. One NOAA scientist told me, quote, the ocean's been pretty weird, end quote. In recent years, there's something called the blob. That's a capital T, capital B that scientists have been keeping an eye on. It's a mass of warm water. It's linked to changes in the climate and ocean ecosystem. Marine heat waves have been occurring more frequently. And it is known that warm waters are bad for certain species of salmon. And so, yeah, it's, it's really complicated, but there are some clues. I came across a 2016 paper that showed that the hatchery environment, you know, this artificial environment we've created, is really shaping salmon at a genetic level. Crowding them into tanks means that hatchery salmon genes are changing. Certain genes, like those involved in wound repair, immunity, and metabolism, are actually more active. But these genes aren't necessarily the traits that wild salmon need to survive in a changing environment. Tony, another factor that we mentioned at the top is that there are many indigenous people who live along the Columbia River whose culture and livelihoods depend on these salmon hatcheries. What can you tell us about this and how these indigenous communities came to be so involved in the salmon hatchery business? It wasn't always that way. In fact, the early efforts at hatcheries, tribes were largely shut out of that, even though they have, you know, depended on salmon and coexisted with salmon for thousands of years. And it wasn't until tribes fought through legal battles to establish their role as co-managers of the river and started uh, getting federal funding to run their own hatcheries that they started to take, take a more active role in these hatcheries and have used these hatcheries as a way to try and, and, and rebuild some of these runs. The, the tribes see this as kind of their only tool for putting fish back in the rivers. But that's what makes this so complicated, of, of course, is it may be their only tool, but it's a tool that it seems isn't working. In your research, is there any way to fix this? That is what makes it this kind of conundrum. And there are indications that this can be done better. And in fact, tribes have been at the forefront of pushing for that. They've been rearing fish in, in different ways to try and preserve more of that wildness. In, instead of, you know, concrete pens, they will use ponds, more natural environments to try and acclimate 
these fish to the rivers. Even these better ways of rearing fish are not a panacea. The complicating factors harming wild fish need to be addressed if you're going to recover salmon populations. It's quite a piece of reporting and a very important story for the region. I'd like to thank Tony Schick, investigative and data reporter in Oregon Public Broadcasting's Science and Environmental Unit, and Irina Huang, a data reporter for ProPublica based in Atlanta. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And if you'd like to read Tony and Irina's full story, go to sciencefriday.com slash salmon. We have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with an organizer of an international group of experts dedicated to identifying poisonous plants and mushrooms. Yeah, stay with us. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Mushroom season is upon us. All different types of fungi are sprouting up in the woods or maybe even in your yard after a heavy rainstorm. Mushrooms are cool to look at, of course, and generally okay to touch. The trouble comes if, say, a little kid or a dog eats one. How do you know if it's poisonous? Well, you'll want an expert opinion, and you'll want that opinion pretty fast. My next guest started a Facebook group to do just that, including poisonous plants, too. She recruited more than 200 botanists and mycologists from all over the world to volunteer their time, and the group is mushroomed in the past several years. It now has over 130,000 members. Joining me is Carrie Woodfield, co-founder of the Facebook group Poisons Help, emergency identification for mushrooms and plants. Uh, Carrie's also a foraging instructor at Wild Food UK based in Hereford, England. Carrie, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thanks for having me. So there are a lot of plant foraging and identification groups online. Why did you decide to create one that's specifically for identifying poisonous plants and mushrooms? I think it was we identified that there was a need for this kind of thing. We noticed that, I say we, myself, uh, the other co-founder and a lot of the other people that I'd come to know through the foraging groups, we noticed that people were turning to Facebook for an identification and just sort of posting on uh, lots of groups when, say, little Timmy or little Fido had eaten a mushroom or a plant and you didn't, don't necessarily want to take a big trip down to the A&E, we call it. You would call it the ER. So they were, you know, trying to ascertain what this was. And by this point, we'd all kind of made a bit of a name for ourselves as good at being able to identify things. So we'd be tagged into these kinds of posts. and. Sometimes uh, I wouldn't be able to identify something, so I'd tag in other people who I thought might be able to help as well. And eventually we kind of realised we were all doing this anyway, so we might as well formalise it in a way that meant that the whole world ended up being covered uh, by someone who was going to be awake and know what it was at the time that it was needed. Most of them were going to be not harmful at all, 
But in the cases where it's ones that are poisonous and and in the deadly range, you really need a, a quick identification uh, to have the best outcome. And so we decided after one of the particular cases, which had involved tagging quite a lot of people, it was a very difficult case uh, involving a, an autistic nonverbal five-year-old. And we realised that we were all so worried about maybe going to sleep or going to work or driving or being without Wi-Fi that the only way to sort of go forward was either to step back and not do it at all or to find a way to make it more cohesive. Could, could you tell us more about this case that, that kind of got everything started, this this case of a five-year-old autistic child who, who had ingested something? Yes. So it was in Britain. I think it might have actually been a, a Scottish school that the school had photographed it and told the mum that their child had eaten this. He wasn't able to communicate how much or anything, but it was clearly in bits. And it was it's part of the Cortinarius genus, which has over 600 species. And so we were sort of all being tagged in by concerned people who knew that we were quite good at the identification. And realized that it might be beyond say my scope but uh, not someone else's we got the answer eventually it turned out to be a non-toxic member of the genus but after sort of talking it through with my my then housemate we kind of we were talking about how we were getting a lot of these tags and hey wouldn't it be a good idea if we set up some kind of place that everything could go to at the same time and, and was only staffed then by uh, people who really knew what they were talking about because another problem on Facebook groups is everyone has an opinion and <laughs> yeah. that opinion may not always be uh, something that's appropriate in that particular situation. You you want, when it's your, your child or your health or, or your pet's health or a loved one, when it's their health on the line, you want the, uh, to know that you can trust the answer. So if your dog or your child eats a plant or a mushroom, and maybe you're concerned, most people's first instinct is, of course, to call local poison control. So I guess I'll ask you, I assume that the thing to do is to call poison control first, right? Not to go on the Facebook group. Actually, it depends. Um, but if it's something as dangerous as a, a dandelion leaf or a lettuce leaf, you, that's something that you don't necessarily need to do. Uh -huh. Whereas... Uh, calling poison control, what's happening now is actually they're referring people to us anyway, or they themselves, that the people in poison control are posting with what they're receiving. And to be honest, a, a few of our identifiers are poison control too. We've selected scientists and, and people who really do know what they're talking about. Also, if it's a really dangerous one, you've got a small window of time to, to act. So you want to get that information to them as as soon as possible. This isn't to replace the systems already in place. This isn't to sort of undermine or or uh, take away from poison control or the amazing work that medical professionals do. This is actually to help them as well. We're very, very fast. Our, our record's like under a minute, but you'll definitely be seen in under five. So by the time you've managed to tie your shoelaces and put your toddler in the car you've got the answer as to whether or not you're driving down to the emergency room with the identification 
to give them or whether or not you're going to the ice cream shop to fill them up on ice cream to yeah. really hungry, you know. <laughs> and, and ice cream is our patented uh, method for our, you know, our non-toxic prescriptions. Uh, if you've eaten something non-toxic, I think it was Patrick Bjork, uh, our Swedish mycologist and botanist, who uh, he's quite famous for. Uh, stepping in and calming down terrified parents with this rather lovely little uh, prescription for <laughs> ice cream and then maybe a glass of wine for mum and dad because you've had a scare. It's, it sounds like those are some pretty safe prescriptions to give. I, I want to ask about this group of, of experts that you've recruited from all over the world. They're, they're volunteers. Who, who are these people and, and how did you recruit them to be part of this group? So in any community, you start to become familiar with who's good at something and you know strengths and weaknesses so we started to all recognize each other's talents and um, abilities and so that sort of founded the core people and then asking them who do you know that I don't that would also be good we've got a lot of uh, big names behind us and it's uh, really a, a I don't know why they decided to work for me like they've, I don't know anything in comparison to these people these are, are people who they've been working for sometimes decades in the industry as uh, lecturers and mycologists and botanists and and researchers in their spare time they're like yeah okay they then this isn't something that we're paid to do so they sort of dip in and out when they can. These are people who are giving their time and they've got day jobs wherever they wherever they work. Um, you can't have just anybody asking questions around the clock. You, you have very specific rules about who can post and what sorts of questions actually go to this esteemed group. If it's a casual question that doesn't have the emergency criteria of with mushrooms being ingested or with uh, plants being touched or ingested, then just put it on one of the other groups that we run and you'll you'll get seen, you'll get the answer. But when it is an emergency, this is we get that internal alert system which pulls us all in to have a look at it or whoever's awake and able, obviously. But we drop everything for some of these cases. I've I've pulled over on the side of the road. I've handed my breastfeeding baby to my partner and, and ran out to the car with my books in order to deal with uh, a, a case because, you know, we, we, we do prioritise it. And uh, the reason that we're so strict about asking about where in the world we are, and if I were to say, oh, this is in HR2, that's not going to mean anything to your listeners because that's specific to Britain, whereas uh, state abbreviations that a lot of uh, USA people in the USA are familiar with don't mean anything to, say, myself or people in Australia or the Philippines. So we need people to say exactly where they are and like spell it out because that way we can alert the relevant people. Exactly. Well, and and luckily, most of the cases that you get calls for are are not life threatening. But but every once in a while, a correct identification really is a matter of life and death. Can you tell us about how you were able to save the life of a boy in Pakistan who ate a mysterious berry? Oh, that was a that was a really horrible case. Um, the group was fairly new at that point, and we got contacted by someone from a hospital saying three boys have eaten this berry. Uh, two of them were already dead, um, the eight-year-old and the 10-year-old, I think. And it was the, the 12, 13-year-old who was unconscious. 
And I actually, I don't know Pakistani flora, um, but one of the gifts maybe of the ADHD autistic brain is being able to recognize like internal patterns. And with normally we don't sort of Google on a hunch, but normally we've got someone who can ID it without who actually knows it. But in this particular case, we, we didn't, we were a very new group and I, I Googled Pakistan red berry and scrolled through about six Google pages before I came across this uh, one called uh, Masuri Berry. Uh, I found the scientific name, put that in, and pulled up all of the same pictures, which allowed me to um, confirm and uh, then found out, yes, this is a horrendous toxin. So passed that back to the hospital. And once once that's done, once the ident is done, that's my job done. Obviously, we like a follow-up, but we don't harangue anyone for it. And it actually took it took someone being a little nosy about a year later asking what happened. And, and he said, yeah, that the boy did live. Usually, if people have pulled through there, they're very quick to tell us. And, and you know, um, that obviously, it, you can understand that that will stay with me forever. But but it's a it's it's a it's amazing that you're able to to do what you did, and uh, amazing that you're able to to find some of this information just knowing a bit about how this works. You you you're an expert in this field, but not even necessarily knowing all the berries in Pakistan. You're able to do a search in a much more efficient way than someone else would. I, I guess I should ask though, so many people because of the internet, because of Google, and because of all these plant applications that you can get on your phone, probably a whole lot of people think they know more than they do, right? They can look up red berries in Pakistan pretty easily as well. What's the difference between you and the people in your group and someone with a smartphone and a, and a, and a plant ID app? That's a very good question. And um, a lot of it, I think, comes down to knowing what you know, but importantly, knowing what you don't know. And there's a lot of drive to feel that you're good at something, the best at something. And I think that's part of the reason the people that we recruited were recruited was because they knew their limits um, and they knew when they were able to to do something and able to say, I don't know this one, but I know who might. Uh, obviously, we recruit people with a, a track record, a proven history of getting things right the epidemic of app users uh, at the moment is is quite worrying because they're, they're just not accurate enough yet. Uh, some of us did a, a test and we worked out it was something like 30% accuracy, but I've certainly had uh, deadly hemlock uh, identified as an edible. And one of our uh, people, her son's hair was identified as a gourmet mushroom. And we run on a consensus as well. So uh, we need at least three people to to agree with that consensus and that way if someone one of us is having a bad day and gets it wrong which does happen we're all human it doesn't matter because we've got all the other people able to say no actually that's incorrect because of x y and z i'm talking with carrie woodford co-founder of a facebook group that helps to identify poisonous plants and mushrooms i'm john dankoski and this is science friday from wnyc studios well Obviously, you and your group are there to to help, but you'd 
love it if you didn't get so many calls from around the world. What sort of tips do you have for people who are spending time outside with their kids and with their dogs? Things that they might just need to know in order to help identify things in advance or to just make sure that they're safe and they're they're not having to call you. In terms of staying safe, obviously most of our cases are going to be toddlers and puppies. So knowing that you know, they're, they're sort of the wild card, as it were, the uncontrolled aspect of it. But they're fast. And, and you know, I'm certainly not uh, faster than my toddler half the time. So uh, it's a mixture of supervision, teaching them as early on to, you know, only eat things that have been cooked and that you can name. So that way, you know, they, they bring it to you uh, to identify, making it a game rather than run away and and like or lie about what what they've done they're able to share with you like that they're interested in this thing and then you can talk about it and mushrooms and plants they uh, they don't have legs they won't chase you so in terms of uh, with mushrooms particularly you have to actually put them into your your stomach for them to pose problem with plants they can be a, a bit more dangerous. We've all been stung by a nettle or I think poison ivy is a big problem in uh, the States. Certainly the, the dangerous ones are, are worth learning, but also try not to think about it as a way of like sanitizing nature. These things are they're doing their job. They're, they've got a purpose um, and a, a life of their own. There was this wonderful poem I read about this uh, man who whose toddler had gotten stung by a, a nettle. And so he, he burned and he hacked and he dug up. And, and then, you know, the next week they were up again. And actually the lesson there is like teach and learn about how to avoid the harm rather than trying to eliminate the harm because the world is uh, not going to be sanitized so easily you know we teach our children how to cross the road look left and right you know you don't sanitize everything you learn and adapt how to how to deal with the world mm. yeah that that's i think a good place to end carrie woodfield is co-founder of the facebook group poisons help emergency identification for mushrooms and plants uh, carrie is also a foraging instructor at wild food uk based in hereford england thank you so much for your time Thanks so much for having me. This has been really exciting. Now here's Emma Gomez with some of the folks who helped to make this show possible. Our radio producers are Christy Taylor, Kathleen Davis, Shoshana Buxbaum, and Rasha Aridi. Diana Montano is our experiences manager. Nahima Ahmed is our manager of impact strategy. Ariel Zich is our director of audience. And I'm digital producer Emma Gomez. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Emma. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. If you missed any part of the show or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts. Or you can ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can also email us. The address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. I'm John Dankosky. Ira's back next week, and he'll be taking some of your questions live in the studio. Have a great weekend.